Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Romans chapter 10 and uh, a couple of things while we're transitioning. Uh, one is um, uh, next church uh, family business meeting will be on October the 6th. That's a Wednesday night. So please just kind of note that that's coming up a few matters uh, to bring up on that evening. And then another one is um, we're passing out some booklets uh, this week. So hopefully you got one. If not, we've got some more at the back there. If you would uh, take one for your family, what this is um Uh, This past summer, I mentioned to you that I was writing some curriculum. Uh, What I did there is uh, anytime somebody joins the church, um, we meet with them for a few times and we talk through, you know, what are the things that somebody needs to know and understand before you're going to be a member of the church? Why be a member? What's expected? Some of those kinds of matters. And over the last 16 years, um, that matter, that content has grown. Uh, over the years. So what I did is uh, took that content, uh, wrote it into a booklet form. And so from here on out, when somebody joins, we can hand that to them. And it's got essentially three sermons worth of teaching on membership. Uh, so wanting uh, all the families uh, in, in the church to have a copy of that would appreciate it and encourage you, encourage you please to read it. Great effort has gone into it. And I think that it will be a blessing to you. Romans chapter 10. Uh, I'm going to read, starting in verse 8 and working through verse 13, the, the specific statement, the specific subject we're considering is there in verse 9, Jesus as Lord. But teaching surrounding this comes up throughout the passage. So begin with me in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches for all who call on him for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Our sovereign God, we are in all of you. You show us who you are. You lead us to truth in your word, Lord. And each time we come, we study, we see more of your glory more of the weight of your holiness. And Lord, we're we're left in awe. And I ask God that you would do that once again here. Uh, Lord, this week in studying this, I've had just such joy and delight in the truths that are here. And I I pray, oh God, that you'll help me to teach, help me to preach these things in a way that the the sense and, and the weight of them is made evident. So please give 
help. I pray that for you to help me to preach, please set a guard over my lips and not say anything that's sinful, foolish or any of that stuff. God, help us to worship. I pray, oh Lord, that you will show us what is meant here in these deep things. So Lord, I pray, lead us to worship, lead us to transformation. We ask God that you give grace that our little ones in the next room would also experience, Lord, awakening as they come to understand your truth. So please bless what happens here. Protect this service. Lord, we ask all these things through the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A few years back, um, Southridge High School, just over to the west of us, uh, won state in football. And for that to happen, there's an incredible amount of uh, leadership that goes into that. Great amount of leadership skill, leadership effort that goes into that kind of thing. And leading up to that season, uh, the coaches recognized the opportunity that was before them. Uh, they saw that this was their chance to make this happen. And so what they did leading up to the season is the, the coaches came up with a slogan that served as a, as a theme for that season. Their slogan was, be legendary. Now, that's not the illustration. Hang with me. They gave this slogan, and what they would do is, uh, leading up to the season, they would uh, they'd give speeches. These rousing speeches that communicated what they meant by that slogan. They uh, gave illustrations. They used examples. They printed t-shirts that had their slogan on that, be legendary. There were just volumes of information that went into this message. And so it would happen throughout the season as they would be in some tough positions in the games. Uh, they would uh, gather the team together and then even in the midst of the game, they would say that slogan, be legendary. And all these speeches would come flooding to their minds. All that they had preached and communicated, what, what they, the weight and the power that they meant for that to have, it, it roused those players up and they would, you know, dig in their heels and fight with grit and determination. There's even a pretty cool story of how this played a factor in the very last play of the very last game uh, to win the state title on a gutsy two-point conversion that they needed to make. They gathered the team together, gave them that speech again, be legendary, it stirred them up, and they converted that for the win. But here's why I tell you the story. It illustrates something that Martin Luther said when he was working to translate the Bible from the original languages into the common language of German, which had not existed up to that point. And he was working, uh, painfully working, to find the right word to translate the Greek and Hebrew, the best word for the situation. Luther said that words are like suitcases. You open a suitcase and there's a, a lot of stuff that comes out of it. There's, there's meaning, there's a flood of information that comes merely with, with one word. When those coaches would say just those two words, there was more being spoken. There was a, a book's worth of information that flooded into their minds and, and had an emotional effect on them. Luther said that as he was working to find the right word, that words are like suitcases. Simply hearing one word opens up a great deal of meaning. 
There's certain words that I can say to you. And there may even be images that pop into your minds and a flood of information. If I say the word mountain, there's information that floods into your mind. If I say the word God, there's information that floods in there. And here's where I'm going this and why the buildup. The word Lord, Lord, is meant to carry this enormous suitcase filled with meaning, an entire Old Testament scripture worth of meaning, so that when the New Testament makes the incredibly bold statement, Jesus is Lord, it's supposed to have this effect of flooding us with, uh, with volumes and volumes worth of meaning. But we need to fill that suitcase with its proper meaning so that we will understand what is meant by this statement. I had been a Christian for an embarrassing long period of time before a certain part of the meaning of the word Lord and the statement Jesus is Lord made sense to me before the light bulb came on. Pastor Ben was actually involved in helping me to understand this part of what that meant. We Christians need to know, need to understand what is meant by the statement Jesus is Lord. The most basic Christian confession is Jesus is Lord. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Um, what is the father preaching when he says that? That's what I want to consider in this message. As we've done numerous times as we studied through the book of Romans, We'll finish a section, but there will be some truth or maybe even some enormous doctrine that's been mentioned. And after we're done uh, studying the passage, we'll go back and consider uh, just that one subject. And so what I'm going to do here is, is preach a doctrinal sermon uh, on that statement, Jesus is Lord. So I'm, I'm going to divide our time into three parts let me give you the first one if, if you are taking notes. I do think it would be a helpful day to take some notes. Here is the first point, and then we're going to spend some time explaining it. The first point is Jesus is kurios. K-U-R-I-O-S. I'll explain that in a bit, and then as we go, I'll tell you the rest of the points here in just a bit, and there's some reason because some explaining that's going to build up to it. So here is first. Jesus is kurios. Um, as I mentioned just a bit ago, the most basic Christian confession is Jesus is Lord. Throughout the New Testament, almost every time that the word is the word Lord is used, it is referring specifically to the Lord Jesus and not the Father or the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen because it does, but I am saying that most of the time, when the word Lord is used, it is referring to the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, and there's a reason behind it. There is something we're meant to understand. All throughout the Old Testament for thousands of years, uh, God was giving prophecy to the nation of Israel, and he was telling them about the coming of this, of this one, telling them about the coming of the anointed one, the, the Messiah, uh, the son of David, the one who would rule the nations, the one who would uh, save the people from their sins. Now, it is significant that there was some debate in the Old Testament times 
that some of the rabbis and such debated whether or not it would be one person or multiple people who came. So the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, would that be the same as the son of David? Or would these be two different individuals? You see what's going on there. So you can see some of the significance in the preaching of the New Testament and showing, okay, that uh, all of these rows are, roles are fulfilled in the one person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But throughout these thousands of years, God was giving prophecy of this one who would come, who would save and rule. The increase of his government will never end. There will be no limits to his authority. And so it was significant when Jesus came, rose from the dead, gave the church our marching orders in the Great Commission, setting us forth, and the church began to go forward and preach the message of Jesus led by the apostles. You know, some of the preaching that happens in the book of Acts is just really basic stuff to say, he has come. The anointed one has come. The Messiah has come. He is here. Uh, Acts 2, 36, okay, on the day of Pentecost, the big sermon that Peter preached on the day of the, new, the, the birth of the New Testament church, Acts 2.36. Note, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so all throughout the New Testament, this phrase, Jesus our Lord, or the Lord Jesus Christ, it's used over and over again. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And on other days, you know that we talk about some of these other titles, Christ, Messiah, Son of David, Son of God. But it's important that we have a, a good grasp on this one, the title of Lord. There are some parts of it that could be confusing. There are some things that we could miss. And so God wants us to dig in and study deep so that we understand what is meant by this title. The word Lord in Greek. Okay, so remember, uh, New Testament was written in Greek. Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Greek, in Greek, Lord is Kyrios, the name that I gave you just a bit ago. So when the New Testament says Jesus is Lord, what it's saying is Jesus is Kyrios. But that Greek word Kyrios translates two different Hebrew words from the Old Testament. Okay, so when the New Testament quotes Old Testament scripture, it's very significant to see what word did they pick. Okay, this is helping us understand the depth of meaning to study words. Okay, our, our faith is built on understanding words. God has revealed himself in words. So when the New Testament quotes Old Testament scripture, seeing the word that it used is significant. And that New Testament word, kurios, translates two different Hebrew words in the Old Testament. Those two words are Yahweh and Adonai. Yahweh, so in English transliteration, if you're wanting to kind of spell it out, uh, Yahweh, uh, Y-H-W-H, -H, and we usually do it all caps, okay? And then Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-I. So let me, let me talk about those for just a little bit, and this will lead us into this next, what we're going to consider. Um, Yahweh, 
and through, throughout history, some have pronounced it Jehovah. And the reason why the little bit of, of uh, the uncertainty with its pronunciation is um, we're actually not for sure how it was originally pronounced. Uh, language changes over time, pronunciations change, and there was actually a period, a season of several hundred years where this word was not uttered from the lips of men. I'll get to that story in a bit, but this word Yahweh, this is the holiest name that has ever been uttered by human lips. The holiest name that has ever been spoken on this planet. This is the divine name. The divine name. When Pastor Ben uh, read 2 Samuel 6, providentially, okay, uh, when it was talking about the ark, the ark that is called by the name, did you see that part in the text? And name was capitalized, the name of the Lord. This is the divine name at the burning bush when uh, Moses approached and God revealed himself to him. And Moses asked, what is your name? And God responded with, you remember, I am, I am. Okay. It's a derivative of the verb to be. So God is the self-sustaining one, the eternal one, the I am. This is the divine name. This is Yahweh. Scripture uh, indicates that there are names for God that we will learn in the age to come that we are not yet holy enough to hear. But in this age, the holiest name that has been given to men is Yahweh. In the third commandment, when we are told not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain, yes, it does mean don't be flippantly saying stuff like OMG. Yes, it does mean that. It does mean that. Don't take the name of God unless you're going to say it reverently. But it means more than that. It means much more than that. You shall not take the name of the Lord. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, in a common kind of way. There is a weight of holiness to the divine name. The name Yahweh is designated in, okay, so most of the translations that you all have on your laps. It is, some English translations go ahead and do translate it as Yahweh. Personally, I wish they all would. But most of our English translations instead uh, designate it as capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. So when you're reading the Old Testament, Okay, and this comes up uh, 1,700 and sometimes in the Old Testament, and you see all caps L O R D. What that is designating is this is the divine name. And this is distinguished from this other uh, name for Lord uh, when you see capital L and then lowercase O R D in the Old Testament. That is, you're being told, is the name Adonai. The reason why most of our English Bibles do this is because of a tradition. The Jews can regard the divine name as so holy. And in an effort to keep the third commandment, there came a point in history where it began to be taught this, this name must not be uttered by human lips. And so for hundreds of years, there was a season that the divine name was not spoken. Now, I think they were wrong in that. Okay. I think they were wrong in that. Moses used the name. David used the name. 
I think it was another one of these instances of a pharisaical group. You always got to be careful of those people who are trying to be more spiritual than the Bible. Okay. And they stopped pronouncing the word. And so when they were reading scripture though, so now consider this. If they said that you must not pronounce the syllables for the divine name, what would happen then when they would read scripture aloud? as is commanded. What would happen when they would pray? What would happen when they would sing some of the Psalms? What they did is they substituted a different word. So uh, the Shema, hear O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. When they would publicly state that, and they did so often, they substituted a different word. And the word they substituted was Adonai. Adonai. Adonai was a word that already existed. And the word Adonai means Lord, okay? But in the sense of its more technical definition, master, ruler, sovereign one, the one superior to me. So for instance, when the Old Testament spoke of the lords of the Philistines, that's the Adonai's, okay? Uh, where there was that occasion, and it's quoted in the New Testament, and that's significant. Um, the time that Sarah referred to her husband Abraham as her uh, Lord, the word there is Adonai in the Old Testament, and when it's quoted in the New Testament, it was Kyrios. The word Adonai is used in the Old Testament to speak of God and of mere humans. God and mere humans. So if you were, so I told you about the Lords of the Philistines. If you, if you take a look back at our, again, providentially, our opening call of worship this morning, Psalm 8, Psalm 8, uh, and it begins with, O Lord, and, and then I saw there was a little bit of difference in the translation, okay, the New American Standard gets it right, okay, uh, another check for the New American Standard, okay, it should say, O Lord, our Lord, and here's why. O Lord, our Lord, and if you open it up in your Bibles, you'll see the first Lord is all caps. What is that? the divine name. O Yahweh, our Adonai. O Yahweh, our Adonai. So divine name, O Lord, you are our Adonai. You are our ruler, our master, our sovereign, the one that we submit to. That is recognizing that the I am, the God who is so holy, we must not speak his name unless it is done with utmost reverence and fear. You are the one we bow to. So in the New Testament, Kyrios, is also the word that translates Adonai. Kurios is used in the New Testament to speak of mere humans, like in the case of uh, Sarah, speaking of Abraham. It's, it's in, one, in one instance in 1 Corinthians, it used to refer to demons because people do treat demons like lords when they engage in idolatry. And it is also used of God. So here is the question. The reason why I'm explaining all of this is here's the question. When the New Testament says that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Kyrios, what does it mean? If Kyrios sometimes translates the divine name, sometimes just means simple authority like a husband, then what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? You can see where some real confusion can come. You can see where some have arrived at uh, heresies, for instance. Uh, for years, um, I've heard preachers say things like, 
Well, kurios in the New Testament translates the, the Hebrew uh, word for uh, Yahweh. And so therefore, Jesus is Lord proves that uh, Jesus is divine. And I would say, well, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Because kurios is also used of humans and demons. You can kind of see the thing here. Jehovah's Witnesses are willing to say Jesus is Lord. But they mean something very different than when we say Jesus is Lord. So the big question is, what does God mean? What does the Bible mean that Jesus is Lord? Well, here is the answer, and we're going to spend the rest of our time kind of unpacking it. The answer is, it is both. Jesus is Lord means that Jesus is Yahweh and Jesus is Adonai. And I want to show you how we know that and then say some things about each of them because there are profound conclusions that we come to, that we draw from this. So here is point number two. Jesus is Yahweh. Scripture indicates that one of the reasons why God has allowed heresies is because truth is made clearer when it is contrasted right next to error. I've mentioned that a bunch of times. So I want you to consider a heresy and how it helps us understand with great clarity a truth. Throughout history, there have been many groups who have been willing to say what uh, modern day Jehovah's Witnesses believe. So for instance, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are willing to say that Jesus is the Son of God but they mean something different than what we mean. They, they would say that Jesus is the son of God, like Adam is called the son of God. He was the first man created, so he was called son of God. You and I in Christ are the adopted sons and daughters of God. So Jesus is a son of God like that. God knew that these heresies would come, and he has made scripture to be sufficient in addressing them. That's why when we, uh, on Wednesday nights, we just finished up the book of Mark. One of the things we noted is that one of the great themes throughout the book of Mark is Jesus is the divine son of God. He is a son in a different way than you and I are sons and daughters of God. The book of John makes it one of its primary points to preach that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, the monogenes. You're learning all kinds of original words this, this morning, okay? Monogenes, mono only, genes, where we get our word Genesis, begotten. The only begotten Son of God, meaning He is of the same essence as the Father. He is divine, very God of very God. Well, we have something similar here with the statement, Jesus is Lord. <coughs> Jehovah's Witnesses are willing to say Jesus is Lord, but when pressed, they would say, yeah, he's the Lord in the same way that Abraham was called a Lord. So are they right? What is meant? Well, look at Romans 10 again. And let me walk you through some of the argument here. Start back at verse nine. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you must believe and you need to confess that Jesus is Lord. Now look down to verse 11. Verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Who is the him? It is Jesus. It's made obvious by the context. Look at verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same 
Lord is Lord of all. Who is the Lord referred to there? It is the Lord Jesus. All of this is made clear. Look at verse 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So again, who's the Lord who must be called upon? The answer is the Lord Jesus. And here's where it gets significant. Verse 13 is a quote from the Old Testament, a quote from the book of Joel chapter two. So if you want to start turning there with me, Joel chapter two and verse 32, there's a reason why I'd like you to see it with your own eyes. It's because of all of this kind of introduction that I gave you there. Joel 2, 32, uh, read it with me. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the, all right, do you see it there with your eyes? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The name of Yahweh will be saved. So do you see there in Joel that the divine name is used and the Holy Spirit then takes that and applies it to the Lord Jesus. Whoever calls on Yahweh will be saved. And the New Testament is saying, that's Jesus. I, I don't know if that rejoices your heart, but it should. <laughs> I don't know if that rejoices your heart, but I can tell you right now, the angels in heaven are rejoicing that that is being spoken on the earth. The New Testament declares Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is divine. It is definitive proof and there are a lot of others, but this is definitive proof that Jesus is divine. He is Lord, not merely in the sense of authority. He is, and that's where we're going to in the next point, but he is Lord in a, in a way that is even beyond this. He is Lord in that he is divine. This is not the only place this is taught in the New Testament. And once you start to see it, by the way, if you'll look for it, uh, this actually is, is shown a number of times, a number of times in the New Testament. Uh, flip to the book of Philippians with me, please. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, a uh, familiar passage to you. Find verse 5 and, and read along with me. Uh, notice kind of the buildup that comes here. Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. The name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, and then watch, there's a quote. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Philippians 2 is significant even if we didn't go back to Isaiah 45 which we're going to, you can start turning there. Even if we didn't go back to Isaiah 45 and see the original passage that this is quoted from, Philippians 2 is preaching. This is Paul preaching and saying, the father has given to Jesus the name which is above every name. What's the name that is above every name? 
And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And what are all the nations going to confess? Jesus Christ is Lord. But to show you even more significance, look back to Isaiah 45, start in verse 20. And read along with me. Isaiah 45, 20. God speaks to the unbelieving nations of the earth. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge. Who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I... The Lord, notice the language there, the divine name, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. All right, let me ask you a very obvious question. Who's speaking? It's God. I am God and there is no other. Verse 21, it is I, the Lord. Yahweh, now continue on. Verse 23, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me, to me, every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me only in the Lord our righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who are angry at him will be put to shame in the Lord. All the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. So Isaiah 45, who is speaking? It is Yahweh. And then do you see what happens there? Elohim, Yahweh swears by himself that to him, every knee will bow. Paul in the New Testament, speaking by the Holy Spirit, applies this to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the one that the nations will bow to and they will confess him as Lord. And so you see the connection there. Jesus is Yahweh who is addressed and who speaks in Isaiah 45. Let me take you to one more in the New Testament, but I think even this one will show a lot more. John 8 in the New Testament. John 8. In John 8, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who do not like him, do not believe in him. And find verse 56. John 8, 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. They understood what he was saying. Now, I want you to think about what happens here. Jesus takes the meaning of the divine name. Jesus takes the meaning of Yahweh and claims it as his own. The name revealed at the burning bush, the divine name. One of my favorite moments from all time um, happened on one of our mission trips down in Belize. 
We, uh, one of the things we do is we meet with that couple that we're always telling you about and praying for, Jeremiah and Alba down there. And there was one of these occasions where they had asked to study through the Old Testament because they said they had a lot of questions. So we would spend seven, eight, nine hours a day studying through the Old Testament. And so I was taking them through and hitting the highlights. And there came to the point where I was walking through the account of the burning bush. And so we came to that point where God reveals his divine name and we spent a bit of time. And as I would teach in English, uh, Alba would then translate it to her husband, Jeremiah, in Spanish. She would read the passage and read the scriptures in Spanish. And so she would be explaining. And then the way you say I am in Spanish is yo soy. Yo soy. I don't know a lot of Spanish, but I can remember that. Yo soy. So she's explaining and she would be explaining and I would occasionally hear that phrase, yo soy, as she was explaining the divine name. So after she had read that passage, I said, okay, now let me take you to the New Testament. I want to show you a connection. And I brought them here to John 8. And as she was reading this passage and she came to verse 58, she's reading in Spanish. I can't understand. But all of a sudden she's reading and she goes, yo soy. (laughs) And at that moment, she made the connection. She made the connection. It was that we had to pause for a moment of worship. They wept, like understanding this connection. Jesus is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the one at the burning bush. He is the one in Isaiah 45. He is very God, a very God. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we mean more than just that he is a, a rabbi or an authority. He is very God, a very God. Jesus is Yahweh. Next point, number three, Jesus is Adonai. Remember that the word Adonai means master, ruler, my superior authority. So when scripture tells us that Jesus is Lord, does it only mean, is the only thing that we're saying is that Jesus is divine. By the way, when I said I'd been a Christian for an embarrassingly long period of time before I realized all that this word means, I spent a a long period of my life thinking that when we said Jesus Lord, that it only means that he is divine. There is more. Or does it also carry this meaning? Well, let me take you to another New Testament passage, Matthew 22. Matthew 22. And in a section where uh, Jesus is teaching a, a group of Jews who understood one part of who the Messiah will be, but there was a part that didn't register with them. He explains this, Matthew 22 in fine verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? You know, he's leading them. He knows what they're going to say. They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Curios saying, and then he quotes some Old Testament scripture from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now I want you to consider what what was happening here. If you want to jump back to Psalm 110 and see it, because in English, we use the word Lord, just translating the Greek there. We just see two word Lords. The Lord said to my Lord. And in Greek, the kurios said to my kurios. But in Hebrew, we see the deeper meaning. So if you turn to Psalm 110 there and you look at it, the Lord, notice how Lord is capitalized. 
the Lord said to my Lord. Yahweh says to my Adonai. There are two different individuals who are referred to here. This is from David's perspective. And he says, Yahweh says to my Adonai, referring to the Messiah, who is Jesus, the son of God. And so what is being revealed here is that Jesus is also Adonai. Remember, Adonai would sometimes refer to just earthly authorities, but also to God, also to God. And so Jesus is here called Adonai, which means this. This is a tremendously important conclusion. I know I've kind of already let it be known, but understand from the text, the conclusion. When we say Jesus is Lord, we mean both. The Bible means both, that Jesus is Yahweh and Jesus is Adonai, which means master, sovereign, ruler, supreme, the one I obey and bow to. Along these lines, we would also fail to miss some more of the depth of meaning if we failed to understand something from the first century culture. Under the Roman rule in the Roman Empire, there was a common statement that was stated by Roman citizens, and it was a, uh, it was kind of a, a, patriar- a patriotic word. It was a declaration of patriotism. And it was, Caesar is Lord. Kind of similar to how the Germans would state their Heil Hitler. And it was a declaration of patriotism, of uh, pride in their nation, pride in their leader, this kind of thing. For Romans, it was Caesar is Lord. One Roman soldier might say it to another and it stirred something in them. Caesar is Lord. So when Christians began to confess Jesus is Lord, you have to understand it was scandalous. It was scandalous to the Jews who understood what Christians meant by it. And it was hated by the Romans. It was hated by the Romans because they were seeing this as as an unpatriotic kind of uh, treason of some kind. But the Christians saying Jesus is Lord was, was a recognition. Sure, Caesar is emperor. He's an earthly king. There's a degree of submission in some spheres of life that I must give to him. But Caesar is not Lord in the sense of how you mean this. Jesus is Lord. Christian, Jesus is Lord is a battle cry of patriotism to the kingdom, the only kingdom that will rule forever. Jesus is Lord is a declaration of submission to the Lordship, the rule of King Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father on his throne ruling over Lord, uh, ruling over heaven and earth, upholding all things by the word of his power. Jesus is Lord, not merely over some small geographic region of this planet. Jesus is Lord, not merely of this planet. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth all of the cosmos. Hebrews 1.3, he sits at the right hand of the Father and uphold all thing, upholds all things, all the cosmos. That's the original word, cosmos, by the word of his power. Without saying Jesus is Lord, that's what it is preaching. In the Great Commission, when Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, 
without saying Jesus is Lord, that is what is being preached. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And so here's where we must make something crystal clear. To confess Jesus as Lord is to make the declaration, I bow the knee to him. I bow the knee to him. I submit to him. And we just have to make this abundantly obvious. To confess Jesus is Lord is to confess, I obey him. He is the one I obey because you do not disobey your Lord. And part of that I mean, not just you're not supposed to. What I mean is, no, by definition. Two words that never belong together are, no, Lord. No, Lord. They are contradictory. They're not true. Because if you say no, that's not your Lord. Your Lord is the one that you submit to, whether that be lust of the flesh, whether that be money, whether that be sex, your Lord is the one you submit to. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. You, 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 it is impossible for you to supremely give submission to, to, to any two things. Your heart is only capable of supremely having one thing on the throne over your heart. If you serve money, then money is not only your God, meaning that is what you worship, what you supremely love. Money is also your Lord, meaning that is who or what you serve. It is impossible for Jesus to be your Lord and to live in ongoing rebellious disregard to the law of Christ. Now, I don't want to overstate it. We still live in sinful bodies. I'm not saying it's impossible for Jesus to be your Lord and you ever fall to sin. No, we're going to sin. We're going to fall and we're going to be stupid. But it is impossible to live in an ongoing, rebellious disregard to the law of Christ and for Jesus to be your Lord because the very definition of what it means for him to be your Lord means he is the one that you submit to internally and externally. To try to do those two things at once, to live in rebellion and to say with your lips that Jesus is Lord is exactly like, it is exactly like a man who professes his love for his wife and he says, you're the only one for me. And then he goes and sleeps with other women. It doesn't matter what he says with his lips. It doesn't matter how many times he says it. It doesn't matter how sincere he, he thinks he is in the moment. It doesn't matter that maybe he has moments of great yearning affection for his wife. His action of sleeping with other women negates what he is saying with his lips. She's not the only one for him. Doing that is exactly like saying Jesus is Lord, but then living in rebellion and disregard to his law. Confessing it with the lips and living in disobedience is exactly like a man who says, I'm a bodybuilder, but he eats Twinkies every day, works out about uh, once a month and butters his potato chips. Okay. And the answer is you lie. You lie. You're not a bodybuilder. I don't care how often you say it. I don't care if you convince yourself that you're a bodybuilder. You butter your potato chips. You're not a bodybuilder. To confess that Jesus is Lord and live in ongoing rebellion is to lie. 
It is to lie. If Jesus is Lord, then he is Lord of the life. We are to confess it with our lips. More importantly, we are to live it with our life. Jesus once looked out at a crowd who professed great love for him, but he saw their hearts and their life. And he said, Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? What he meant? Why do you lie? Why do you lie? Because if I am your Lord, you would obey. Christian, do some of the passages in the New Testament where Jesus explains the high cost of what it means to be a disciple, does it make more sense now? They are connected to his Lordship. If anyone would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and come follow me. Is it starting to make sense that the high call of discipleship is connected with who Jesus is? He is Lord. He is our master. He is the one that we obey. There was an occasion when the apostles had done some good deeds and they thought they really needed a gold star, a big pat on the back and some praise. In Luke 17, 10, Jesus told them, when you do all the things which you were commanded to do, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Talk about the opposite of your self-esteem gospel. Jesus is Lord means we are his slaves. And Christians are the people on the earth who rejoice in that. We're the people who gladly, who rejoicingly say, I'm a slave. So it's, it's why the beginning of all these New Testament letters where Paul will write, the great apostle Paul, one of the most famous men in all of history. In terms of the kingdom of God, one of the greatest men in history begins the letter by saying, I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus. That means something, Christian. We're slaves. Believing in Jesus as Lord results in repentance. And I want that to settle in and make the connections in your mind. Think about it. Think about the connection between lordship and repentance. Jesus is Lord is what leads to repentance. To truly trust in him as Lord is going to result in a change of, I can't keep serving money. If he's Lord, I serve him. To place your faith in the Lord Jesus is to entrust yourself to him. This is why the New Testament will sometimes say you must repent to be saved because true faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. It is impossible to do one without the other. It is impossible to truly trust in the Lord Jesus and not repent. And it's impossible to repent unless you believe in him. This is one of the principal truths that has been lost in the false gospel of easy believism in American Christianity. Easy believism, a gospel without repentance and a gospel without Jesus as Lord. Several decades back, America had a raging debate within Christianity. Uh, th this, was, this was back before my time as a Christian. I would have been a young child and not yet saved when this debate was raging the hottest. But it happened here and it was known as the Lordship Controversy. This, this was all the, all the fight. And here's how, it, here's how it went. The whole issue of people who fall away. 
you know, people who fall away from church, people who made a profession of faith and then they fall away. What are we to think of these people? That has just been, you know, it's a confusing issue. It is an issue that has brought the division between a lot of denominations. But there was a group who said this. Well, you know, I was with John when he prayed the sinner's prayer. So I know he's saved. Okay, now pause there for a parenthesis. Remember how last week we talked about the sinner's prayer and some of the misunderstandings that come with that? Salvation is not a prayer and it's not the decision. Salvation is the miracle of God to save. Salvation is God awakens someone in the new birth. That person responds in faith and upon faith, God justifies. Salvation is the work that God does, not the part that man plays. So when somebody says something like, I was there when he prayed the sinner's prayer, so I know he's saved, they're misunderstanding what salvation is. Salvation is not the decision. True salvation is the work of God. Okay, so let me, let me come back here. So this guy says, well, I was with John when he prayed, when he prayed that prayer, so I know he's saved. Here's what happened. John accepted Jesus as his savior, but he hasn't accepted him as his Lord. So John's saved. He's okay. I know he's smoking crack every day and he blasphemes Jesus' name three times. I, I know he does that, but he's saved because he prayed that sinner's prayer. Have you ever heard this kind of stuff? You ever heard this kind of accepted him as your savior, but not as your Lord? The Lordship controversy was the church, you know, pulling their hair out and going, what are you talking about? This is not what it means. Jesus is Lord. And a part of it was, was appealing to Romans 10, 9. To look, look, you must believe and confess Jesus is Lord. True saving faith is to embrace the person of Jesus and all of who he is. He is Messiah, Savior, Son of God, Divine, Lord. It is to receive him by faith, and that means embracing him as Lord. Christian, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is Kyrios, he is Yahweh, he is Adonai. Christian, your Lord is the Lord. Your Lord is Lord of heaven and earth. Your Lord is the one the nations will bow to. They are going to bow the knee and confess Jesus. Your Savior is the one who sits on a throne. Your Savior is the one that even demons will have to bow to and to confess. Jesus is Lord. Christian, live like it. Live like it. And by saying that, live like it, we could mean a whole lot of application. Jesus is Lord means use this as the, 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 the battle cry to stir up your own obedience when you're struggling. Use this uh, to, to rouse yourself to other Christians, to remind those who are going through difficulties, those who are lying on their deathbed. There are a lot of things you can say. One of them is Jesus is Lord. You will see his face. Jesus is Lord, which means Christian, do not walk around this world with your tail tucked between your legs, like you're in defeat all the time. Your Lord is the Lord, Lord of heaven and earth, the one who reigns. And if you have never turned to Jesus, 
Knowing that you need, and, and, and let me mention some things you need to know and believe. Knowing that you need to be saved. Knowing that you must have forgiveness of sins. And knowing that Jesus is Lord and that you must submit your heart to him. If you have never come to Jesus like that, the command from the throne that Jesus gives is, come. Come and drink freely of the waters of life. You will be saved at the moment of believing, but you need to know that you're coming to bow. Come bow the knee, which is figurative language. I mean, we should bow our knee literally and physically in worship, but to say it like this, come bow the knee is to say figuratively, come submit your heart to the Lord Jesus. Receive him as your Lord. He is the Lord, but you may not be regarding him as your Lord. Stop living as your Lord. Stop making up your own law. Submit to the law of Christ. Repent and believe and you will be saved. Here's how we'll transition into the time of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask you to bow for a minute of silence, for some time of confession of sin. Do the business with God that you need to do. I'll close that time in prayer and then I'll give some instructions for the Lord's Supper. Thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.